Let's look in John chapter 6, and let me read one of the verses that will sort of end up being our text verse for today, and that's verse number 68. Here's a question that Peter asks, and it says this in verse 68, Then Simon Peter answereth him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. What a question that is. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And if you look at what continues, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that note, let's ask God's blessing, and then we'll look into his word today. Father, we thank you for making it possible for us to be out, not only for giving us conducive weather, but also for giving us health and strength, and even beyond that, for putting the desire in our hearts to be in the house of the Lord and to meet with God's people and to expose ourselves to God's truths whether we hear something that we had not heard in quite that way before or whether we hear old things, we're thankful that, like the householder, uh, the Word of God is such that we bring forth out of our treasures things both new and old, and they are there to refresh us and bless us and admonish us and encourage us in our lives. And we thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to have God's Word, to be able to read and to fall back on and to be reminded of the great and precious promises and I just pray here today, Lord, now you've gathered us, you've brought these people here today, you've given this message, you have something for us. We believe that, we're confident of that. We don't want to miss it, so we pray that you'll still inquire our hearts, uh, take away from us those things that we really can't have any control over uh, while we're here, That uh, to realize that we'll be able to get at those things after church or some other time, but right now your purpose is for us to open our hearts to your truth. I pray, Father, you just give me liberty and freedom to bring the word of God today, and I pray you'll guide my lips to help me to say those things that will be helpful for what you know to be the needs of your people here today. And Lord, we'll just thank you for all these wonderful things now. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Well, as you know, our series that we're sort of winding down but still have some territory to go in the Gospel of John, interesting too because uh, a lot of what we find in John's Gospel is uh, material not necessarily recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the so-called synoptic Gospels. So we do encounter some things here that are, that are really well worth uh, spending the time with. I think I had pointed out to you, they asked him this. So questions that people asked of Jesus, and this chapter is really interesting because you can count at least eight chapters, or I'm sorry, eight questions in this chapter. Now, a lot of them come about as a result of the bread of life discourse. In other words, Jesus gets involved in this rather extended discourse with the Jews. And so in the give and take, and as the intensity of the discussion increases, they murmur, they ask questions, Jesus responds to those things. We'll, we'll touch on that just a little bit throughout the message, but that, that accounts for why we, we have a question so rich, or a chapter so rich in questions. However, for all the questions that the Jews, Jesus' antagonists, may be asking in the course of the heart of the chapter, the Bread of Life Discourse, it is interesting to notice something. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter because the chapter opens and closes with a question from one of Jesus' disciples. So in chapter 6, verse 5, the first of the eight that we encounter is asked by Philip, right? So Philip, it says, When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And of course, this is a question that Jesus asks of him. And then it says, he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. So 
There's a question in Philip's mind. Philip says 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for each of them to take a little. And so maybe we would refer to this as an indirect question, but when we get to the end of the chapter, we have certainly a question that Peter asks directly of Jesus. Verse number 68, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. What I want to talk today is about how to deal with discouragement, because I believe that on the heels of discouragement, what Peter had to say in this response to the Lord, although it was phrased as a question, had to be a tremendous encouragement. What kind of discouragement are we seeing? Well, you'll look in verse number 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he saith unto them, does this offend you? Well, of course, it's always one thing to have those whom you sort of know are not sympathetic to the truth, the Jews, asking all of these questions in kind of a hostile way. But boy, when it gets down to the place, it deepens to the place, notice verse 61, where Jesus understands, senses that his, some of his disciples, those who are, are his apparent followers, are murmuring. The question is kind of uh, underneath their breath, as it were. Uh, at the sayings that Jesus has given, and he says to them, does this offend you? That can be very discouraging. And so the Lord, when this distills a little bit further, asks his, his, his inner core, his group of disciples, the inner core, will ye also go away? Now let me stop for a second and say, does it concern you if somebody would be talking about the Lord feeling discouragement. Do you think that's to speak down about the Lord? Do we think of Jesus in such a way that we would say, oh, he, he, he never was subject to those kinds of things? Well, maybe we need to back up and think about it again because, you know, the Bible does tell us in the book of Hebrews that he was tested or tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So no, we're not demeaning the Lord in any sense to portray the fact that he faced some of the same discouragements and temptations to discouragement that you and I do in our lives. I think, though, what we have to do is always balance it by saying that in Jesus, whenever this came about, Jesus always met it on precisely the perfect terms. He always knew exactly how to respond to it. And furthermore, we need to add, add to that, he not only faced it on always the, the perfect terms, knowing exactly how to respond to it, but he always triumphed over it completely. Now, that's something for me right there. Because I think discouragement is just one of those things that afflicts us all. I mean, whether it's every day or every week, it's certainly every week. And uh, that we have something come along that's just discouraging to us. And sometimes it can be quite paralyzing to face discouragement. So I want to elaborate on this a little bit and try to get you into the mood and spirit of what I think is going on here and why it's appropriate to talk about discouragement. So we're going to look, first of all, at discouraging moments do you have any discouraging moments in your life? And then we're going to look at how the Lord handled this because the way to handle it is with encouraging truths. It's the truth of God's word. If you really think deeply about the subject of discouragement, almost always lies under or the foundation of it. If the devil can get us off into wrong thinking, if the devil can get us to believe things that just really aren't true about life, really aren't true about our circumstances, 
then we can kind of get really blue. We can kind of get really discouraged at what's going on. So there's a lot of instruction in seeing the things the Lord confronted that could bring discouragement, and even more in seeing the way he addressed it. And that, that really excites me. I'm, I'm really interested in that, and I hope I can do a, a half-decent job of conveying some of this to you today, and it'll be a blessing to you as well. What are these discouraging moments? Well, folks, I'll tell you, I can speak eloquently along this line, and I'm sure other people here today can as well. In the Lord's work, few things are more discouraging than disciples who seem to fall away. I used to tell the folks in Huntingdon that I'd look out at the congregation, and in the configuration that our building had when I first came there, we could seat over 400 people. Now, you know, you always max those things out. Whether or not that would be completely comfortable to everyone there is another question, but that was the seating occupancy for the original configuration of that building. Then we decided that we wanted to open things up a little bit and utilize some of the space in the back where it was kind of maxed out. Pews were clear to the back. And uh, we said, we want a little more room back here for people to be able to fellowship. And uh, besides that way, we'll have to, the, the back row Baptists will have to find a new back row. So we took, several <laughs> we took several of the pews out in the back of the church, one of the smartest moves I think we ever made because it really did accomplish exactly the purpose that we had in mind. And there was room back there for people to talk after the service and, and fellowship together and, and this type of thing. But in any respect, I used to tell people there, you know, if we had everybody here this morning who used to attend this church or that you might encounter in town who still would say, this is, a, this is my church, we don't have enough seats here for all those people. And I never once had anybody there who'd been in the church ever how many years who ever disagreed with that. I knew it was true. They knew it was true. It's just one of those things. And it happens, but boy, one of the most discouraging things in the Lord's work are when disciples seem to fall away. That's what's going on here. Notice verse 66. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That's just plain discouraging when that happens, isn't it? And so when we look at this a little bit more deeply, we want to know, well, what was the cause of it? Why did these people who seemed to be a part of the Lord's group of disciples, who at least outwardly were his followers, what happened that they decided that they were no longer going to follow? And we notice in verse 60 that the disciples made the comment, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is an hard saying, who can hear it? So, of course, they're referring to the bread of life discourse, and more particularly, they're referring to when Jesus started talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. But before we get to that and analyze that a little bit further, let's look at this verse 60. This word that's used here and translated hard is kind of a colorful word, because what do you think of when you think of something that's hard? Well, you might think of that parking lot out there. That's hard. So like a rock, we think of a rock as something that's really hard. But this is not that word. This is a different word that has the idea of something that is lacking. Its literal sense is something that's lacking in moisture and therefore becomes hard. So let me ask you to think about it this way. You know, if you take a, a nice fresh loaf of bread, you open that up and it smells good in there, it's moist, and it really makes you want to get out some butter and jelly or something and enjoy that bread. But now what happens if you get out a, a plate, a saucer-sized plate maybe, stick a nice, moist, fresh piece of that bread from that loaf on it, 
and leave it out all day. Leave it out all night. Come the next morning, and what do you have? Well, especially if your humidity is low in the house, like it is a lot of times in the winter in a lot of places, the, the moisture goes out of it, right? It becomes dry, and it becomes brittle, hard, impalatable. You got that picture? Now, now that piece of bread has lost its attractiveness to you. It's no longer pleasant to you, and it's kind of become hard in the sense of lacking in moisture, and therefore it's become disagreeable. It's become distasteful. When you apply that picture over to something someone says, it's hard in the sense that it's disagreeable. It's distasteful to you. Or we might say it's stiff. Something, somebody says something to you and it just kind of catches you as stiff. That's kind of the picture that's behind this word. And like I said, of course, the references to what Jesus had been talking about in the Bread of Life discourse, you can look at verse 53 as a good example of this. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Well, that, that does seem to be kind of a, a difficult saying of, of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, if, if we only had that and didn't have the context, didn't have the rest of the things that Jesus said to help it make sense to us, some people might go so far as to think, well, just like the Jews, this is crazy. How can this man, they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink? It made no sense to them. And not only that, it not, not just that it made no sense, it was kind of almost a, a repugnant, distasteful kind of a saying to them. But the Lord tried to make clear, and really when you have the context of this, it's not that difficult to understand what the Lord was really saying that he was speaking in a spiritual sense. Notice all the way back to verse number 51. I want to show you just a couple things here that Jesus said. Look at verse 51. Now, see, if, if you, you have your Bible, so it makes it possible to go back and do this, they would have needed to be listening carefully. But nevertheless, Jesus said it enough times that you begin to get the picture. Look at verse 51. He said, I am the, what kind of bread? Living bread. Well, so right away that tells me that Jesus is speaking figuratively, right? He's not saying that his hand is a loaf of bread. He's not saying his light, his, his leg is a loaf of bread. He's speaking figuratively. He's using bread as an illustration. Let's go down further. Verse number 55. For my flesh is meat or food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Now, it might not get you, uh, really stick out to you from that verse, how the Lord is, is doubling down on this idea of figurative language, but look at the word indeed. He uses it twice. And that word is the idea of true. So what the Lord is saying is, this is something beyond. I, I'm making the claim that my body is, the, is true bread and my blood is true drink. And then we get down a little bit further, and the Lord has more to say about this. Um, notice um, verse 63. This is kind of the, the one that most people single out if you're only going to use one verse. But the Lord gives this explanation, and he says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Now notice, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. So no less than three times, and probably much more so, I just tried to call these out as good examples for you, the Lord makes it clear enough that he's talking about a spiritual application of this. 
He's trying to say to them that his body is going to be the sacrifice by which we have eternal life. And that we are as dependent on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to have eternal life as we are on bread to have physical life. And that only by partaking, see a loaf of bread, right, does you absolutely no good if you don't use it, if you don't partake of it, if you don't get the nourishment that your body depends on for the sustenance of of physical life. Jesus Christ, we're just as dependent upon him. Jesus Christ is of no value to us unless we partake of him. In other words, unless we depend on him for salvation in the very same way that you would depend on physical bread for physical life. And of course, by building this out a little bit, by not just saying I am the bread of life, but by talking about the sacrifice that that he will give for the life of the world, um, he's talking about believing in this whole thing. Look back to verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So how is it that this hunger that he's talking about now can be satisfied by coming to him, he says. Notice down in verse uh, 47, and it says in that verse, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And then when we get down a little bit further, verse number 54, then he says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. Well, when you put all those sayings together, how is it that you have eternal life? It's by coming to him and by believing on him and the eating of his body and the drinking of his blood are simply meant as a figurative spiritual illustration of what it is to partake of Christ, to depend upon Christ for eternal life. As I said before, just as we would depend upon regular food for the sustenance of our physical bodies. Well, we can, we can go through all that. I mean, Jesus said it to them. But the bottom line was it proved to offend them. Notice verse 61. When Jesus knew in, his, Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? You know, I have to, when I see that, it kind of tips me off to something, kind of makes me understand something the Lord does say in a little more clearer terms in a few moments down a little bit later in the text. Are these folks ever really, are these folks genuine disciples? Or did Jesus have large crowds following him, some of whose connection with him was shallow and surface only? And clearly that's true because when we get to verse 64, this is what I was mentioning a little bit later, he says, but there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. But when Jesus asked them, does this offend you? I'm really reminded, and this, this of course, just matches up perfectly. I'm really reminded of what he says about when he, he gives the parable of the soils. And when he gives the example of the, the second hearer, the, the, the seed that fell in the stony places, which that's, all, that's another hard, right? The, the stony places, Then when he interprets that down in verse 22, he says, Verily, uh, he says, But he that received the seed, verse 20, Matthew 13, 20, into the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it. 
So hence the disciples who were sort of surface in their attraction and shallow in their attraction. But then, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Jesus said, does this offend you? Folks, maybe I could just share with you in a humble way something I've learned about the Bible When I come across things I don't understand in the Bible, I don't let that offend me at all. I don't let that bother me. I don't let that cast out on my faith. I understand that I worship the incomparable God, that God is so big, I'm never going to fully understand everything in this book. There are always going to be truths that are such Mount Everest peaks that... I'll be able to get up to a certain level. I'll be able to understand certain things. There are other truths in the Bible that it seems like to us they're difficult to reconcile, but they're both taught. Am I going to let that be a problem to me? No, but I think the point that I'm making is is I have something that's genuine in my heart. I have the Holy Spirit in my heart. I suppose if I were not a genuine believer, I I could throw up my hands, just like some of these disciples did that day, and say, you know, you can't do anything with the Bible. You can't understand the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. Everybody's got all kinds of different opinions about the Bible. And walk away. I have to be honest with you. I, I might have had a lot of temptations in my life, but that's never been one of them. I trust God. I trust God that he's bigger than I am. I'm glad it's that way. If I could ever understand everything about God, I mean, I'm not looking for a vacancy in the Trinity. If I could understand everything there was about God, I figured I'm as big as he is. I'm not, and I know that. And I'm always instructed by what Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, the first thing he said to them when he gave them that pattern prayer was, Our Father, which art in heaven. Well, it's good to be reminded God is in heaven and I'm down here. And God is immortal and God is God and I am not. And I just find it such a privilege that God has seen fit to give us his truth in his word and reveal it to us so that as we heard earlier, there's there's nuggets of gold in here and we study for those things, we look for those things. And sometimes the blessings that we find in God's word are, they're they're low-hanging fruit. They're easily plucked. And there's other things that you've got to get a ladder and you've got to be dedicated and you've got to get up a little higher if you're going to reach that, that layer where the figs are. Those figs. You've got to get up a little bit higher to get that. And so this doesn't bother me at all, really, about the Bible. But I do know this. The last thing that I would say by discouraging moments is there's always the concern that discouragement of some makes matters worse and it spreads. And Jesus seems to be entertaining that when he says in verse number 67 to his core group of disciples, will you also go away? Do you, can you just sort of sense the, the pathos in that? I mean, can you just sort of sense the emotion in that as he reaches out and appeals to them? Just envision this in your mind. Here are people who heretofore were following Christ. Now they're upset with him over this saying. They... They're offended. It's just like people that come to church and get miffed over something and never come back. That, that to me, has always been one of the most discouraging, hurtful, painful things. Any, any pastor who has a true pastor's heart hates that kind of thing. You just, it just brings pain to your heart. 
you just think to yourself, oh, I, what could I do to explain this to them? What can I do to help with this? And there's some people that just, it doesn't matter. It's almost like they're, they're looking for something. And then Jesus reaches out to the 12 and he says, you going to go too? You going to leave too? And I think that what we're hitting on here is something that I just want to talk about for a moment before I leave this subject of discouraging moments. And that is that discouragement is a very, you know, you might put it this way. Enthusiasm is infectious, but discouragement is contagious. I don't know if maybe you heard the story about the two fellows that, well, one, it started out with one, but he, he just got so discouraged with life that he just couldn't see any light in the end of the tunnel. And he decided that he was going to end it all. So he climbed up on a bridge and he was preparing to jump. Well, to his benefit, there was a passing motorist who saw this situation. He stopped his car he realized if he could just maybe engage the guy in conversation, that maybe he could talk him out of it. Maybe he could talk him down a little bit. And so he stopped his car, he got out, and he approached the man, and he asked him, he said, what's wrong? What, what, what's the problem here? Why? And the guy said that his life was just a total discouragement, and as far as he was concerned, this world was so bleak, there was just nothing left to live for. And the guy, the other guy said to him, he said, well, he realized if he could just kind of keep him talking a little bit. And he, and he said, well, why don't you tell me about it? And so the two fellows talked for 10 or 15 minutes. At the end of the 15 minutes, they both jumped. <laughs> There's a man by the name of Ray Johnston that wrote a book entitled The Hope Quotient. You know, when people lose hope, it's not good. So the title is an interesting one, The Hope Quotient. He says this in the book. It's rather interesting. A huge life principle I have learned the hard way is that discouragement precedes destruction. Think about what he has to say. It really makes a lot of sense. He says, I cannot find anything that has been destroyed without discouragement being the underlying cause. No person has ever come up to me and said, I'm so encouraged about my marriage, I'm getting a divorce. <laughs> no one has ever come up to me and said, I am so encouraged about school, I'm dropping out. No teenager, he said, has ever come up to me and said, I'm so encouraged about what my faith means to me, I'm going to start drinking and taking drugs. Discouragement devastates, and absolute discouragement devastates absolutely. In the absence of hope, discouragement rules. You won't find a more ruthless, negative, destructive, vicious dictator anywhere on the planet. And the truth be told is, right from the person standing before you to the last person in the back, we all struggle with it from time to time. So what are we going to do? Well, this is what excites me. I'm going to go and look at how Jesus responded. Because when I go and look there, then I realize I'm right back to what I told you at the beginning. I'm not thinking that Jesus never dealt with the temptation. 
I'm thinking that Jesus always faced it on perfect terms and always walked away a complete victor. And I'm thinking, I want to be like that. I want to know better how to overcome this when it attacks. And so you note here that there's a progression, or or rather note here that Peter... Peter is the person who gives rise to this whole thing by what he says. And I'm telling you one thing. You can talk about how Peter, from time to time, puts his foot in his mouth. You can talk about that as long as you realize you're probably worse at it than Peter ever was. You can talk about that. He did say some things that weren't the greatest. But I'll tell you what, you better turn around and out of the other side of your mouth, give him credit for the things he said that were bell ringers. I mean, home runs. Beloved, this isn't just a home run. This is a, this is a home run with at least two men on base because there are at least three things that come out of this. It's like Peter hits the ball over the fence and there are at least two men on base that run home. Three home runs in one statement. How, how, think about your, this for a moment. Put yourself in the in the human sense, in our Lord's sandals, and think about this for a moment, and think about when he reached out to them, you going to go too? And Peter came back with that answer, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That just had to bring warmth and encouragement to our Lord's heart. So what are, these, what are these three things that come out of this? That's what I want to spend what time I have left talking about. First and foremost, the most obvious thing is, you know, we are not alone. Remember how I said a moment ago and how I, I mentioned that it really at the found, foundation of most discouragement, if not all discouragement, is a lie? If the devil can get you believing a lie, what lie might you believe here? I'm all alone. Nobody faces the discouragements I face. No one faces the temptations. Oh, if people, I'd be so embarrassed if people knew the things that sometimes I think about, the things that sometimes I'm tempted by. I'm all alone. That's the work of the devil to to separate out the sheep from the flock and catch the stray where the wolf can easily knock that stray down and kill it. The devil's always working in that way. We are not alone. Do you know Elijah almost was overcome with that very thing? If we go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, I want to read these verses to you because he says the exact thing that we're talking about here, so it gives us another opportunity to observe an example of this. I'm sure we've all gone through this, but... We tend sometimes, I think, to put these saints up on pedestals and think that they never went through these things. But certainly this was something that very nearly overcame Elijah. And in verse number 14, if you look at 1 Kings 19, 14, he tells the Lord, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. God comes to him and says, what are you doing here? You were back up there, right? You were back up there on Mount Carmel. You prayed and it rained. And you came down off that mountain and you outran Ahab 
clear to Jezreel. Go think about that sometime. That was about a miracle in itself. And you had that great showdown with the prophets of Baal. I tell you, there's something to be learned out of that. After, after spiritual mountain peaks, watch yourself. Because the devil's a great counterpuncher. And so often then you'll find yourself the very next day or the very next week like it never happened and that you're, you're cast down and you're in, this, in this, the grips of this discouragement. So the Lord comes to him and he says, what are you doing here? And he, now he launches into his complaint. I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life, he said, to take it away. And the Lord's kind and gracious to him, but the Lord eventually corrects that and says, you know what? Verse 18, yet have I left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Beloved, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And so often this is the case. Peter was proof of that. When Jesus or we may, may begin to feel or wonder, are we alone? Is there anyone left? Is there anyone who's still holding firm? Is there anybody left who's still trying to please the Lord? And Peter comes along and says, Lord, we believe and are sure. And it was like a, a, a demonstration to us because of what he says, that the Lord was at work in his life. There was a genuineness of faith in his life. And not only was there a genuineness of faith, but there was an ongoing work that God was doing in Peter's life to mature his belief in Jesus Christ. Why do I say this? Well, all you have to do is go back and look at the statement that Jesus makes in verse 45 when he says, It is written, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Well, had Peter heard and learned of the Father? He most definitely had because what did he say on a former occasion? Jesus said, Who, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Oh, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And what did Peter say? But we believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord responded to him and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And Peter and the other disciples, Peter being the spokesman, Peter and the other disciples were proof positive that Jesus was not alone. There were other people that God was working in their hearts, bringing them to faith in himself, and then maturing that faith in their hearts and lives. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly what happens here. You see, he goes on to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. But look what he says next. This is the thing that he's been taught of God. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And I got to thinking about the fact that, you know, God seems to have in every dispensation always ensured that faith doesn't perish from the earth. That's always been God's way. And we may think we're alone, but as I said before, just because you can't see it doesn't mean God's not at work. 
I got to thinking about that. In fact, you, you'll get a little smile out of this. I said, where's that verse? It says, faith shall not perish from the earth. So I started searching for it. And anymore, I just search it all electronically. Used to be, you know, you'd grab Strong's Concordance down off the shelf, but there's easier ways. So I started searching electronically. I couldn't find that verse in the Bible. I was sure I knew that phrase, shall not perish from the earth. You know where it is? Not in the Bible. It's in Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And when I, when I found that, I just, I just broke out into a broad smile because I've often thought that that's one of the greatest speeches that you could ever read. Here's what the last sentence of it is. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we... Here, highly reserved that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. But as inspiring as those words are, it's even more inspiring to me to realize that God's doing the very same thing insofar as his people and his faith are concerned. So we are not alone. It seems that way a lot, but if you start believing that lie, believe me, you're going to be discouraged. Secondly, we have to always remember that there are times when winnowing is necessary. You know what winnowing is? We don't do so much of that, but, I mean, somebody has to do it. But you think about, a combine accomplishes a lot of that stuff for us now, but you think about in Bible times, what did they do What to winnow? What was the process? Well, you know, you got the grain and you got all those husks and stuff that are impalatable. It's not something that you want uh, in your bread. That'd be more than whole wheat bread. And so what'd you do? You, you threw it up in the air. And the wind would come and catch those things that were of useless, the chaff, so to speak, and blow them away. And then you'd be left with what was good and edible and profitable. Well, where do I see that here? Well, I know what Jesus is doing, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I think he knows what he's doing. I, I'm noticing a progression here. In this bread of life discourse, I'm noticing that as the discussion goes on, he keeps ratcheting up what he has to say to them. He keeps taking it to a deeper level. And it's almost like the same thing when the disciples noticed, why do you always speak to them in parables? And he had a reason for that, and he has a reason for that here. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. First of all, if you notice back in verse number 15, when they came by force to make him a king, what did he do? He departed and went into a mountain alone. Winnowing is going on. Some people are interested in Jesus for the wrong reasons, and Christ's not interested in that. So he departs. In the next verse, it tells us, and when you compare it to the other accounts in the other Gospels, Jesus constrained his disciples to go down and to get into ships and cross to the other side. So now he's removing himself and he's removing even his disciples from that scene of that great miracle which caused some people to have a surface interest in him only, a shallow interest, a political interest but not a spiritual interest. 
And so he gets away from that. He gets his disciples away from that. Then when they take shipping and they come to the other side and this discussion continues, he again warns them. He says in verse 26, you know, there's a lot of you here that you're seeking me because you were filled with the loaves. Not because you saw the miracles, not because you're interested in me and who I am and what those miracles have to say about me. You're seeking me because you're, you ate the loaves and were filled. And then he admonishes them, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Lord shall give him, for him hath God the Father sealed. And then ultimately with those Jews who follow him and in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum, he gets into this broad ranging discussion about the bread of life. And you say to yourself, why does he introduce those sayings? If they were having trouble accept, accepting him on one level, why did he deepen this to the point that some of the things that he said to them made no sense to them, eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And they murmured and took issue with him. Why did he do that? Well, again, I'm content that the Lord knows what he's doing. I think that this is all an apparent effort on the Lord's part to separate the wheat from the chaff. Do you know that many times that's going on in the lives of believers as well? Jesus said to Peter, the same man, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Do you know, I wish I had more time to talk about this, but I don't, but I at least want to show you the verses to make the point that we're onto something here. Even if we don't have time to develop it maybe as fully, do you know there are, two, there are at least two verses in the epistles that talk about this truth I'm talking about right now? 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen is the first one. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. Man alive, they had a lot of problems going on in that church, didn't they? And he says in verse 18, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it, and notice what he says in the next verse. Seems like a hard saying. For there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. These divisions occur, and one of the byproducts of them is it helps us to recognize maybe who's genuine and who's not. But the bell ringer of a verse that Go over to 1 John chapter 2. Like I said, I'm just kind of throwing something out. You can do more with it if you want, but I at least want to show you the verses. John really, John really gives an example of this when in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have remained or continued with us but they went out that they might be made manifest that they are not all of us. In other words, there were people who were claiming to be Christians then, but they denied that Jesus was the Christ. And he said, those people, those people eventually parted company and left. We hate to lose anybody, but over that, see you later, because we're not compromising that truth. It demonstrated that those people were not genuine. But the other is also true. It has a way of demonstrating who is. I don't know if you ever heard the story about the little five-year-old boy. I find this kind of compelling. But he got pouty with his mom and dad, and 
upset with them and a little cranky and rebellious as sometimes little kids will, sometimes big kids too. But in any case, he just decided he was going to run away. So he went and packed a little satchel with a few belongings in it and out the door he went. All pouty and sultry. And he kept walking around the block. Walking around the block. Well, it got towards the end of the day. It got kind of dark, and there was a policeman who had noticed the boy and noticed what he was doing. He went up to him and says, so what's the big idea? What are you doing? He says, I'm running away. The policeman said, well, look, I've watched you for a while now, and he says, all you do is keep walking around the block. He said, how do you call that running away? He said to the policeman, he says, well, he says, what do you want me to do? He said, I ain't allowed to cross the street. Well, you know, the youngster was thinking on the outside he was going to run away, but deep down in his inside, he had the respect and love for his parents, and he really didn't intend to run away. And you know, beloved, that's a good picture of you and me sometimes. Sometimes we get pouty. Sometimes we get rebellious. Sometimes we get a little out of line. But there's a compelling power within the heart of each of us, a power that's beyond us that keeps us. And so sometimes the process of winnowing is necessary. You don't like to lose people. You don't like to see people fall away. But if in God's foreknowledge and, and knowledge of things and complete knowledge of things, that's the best, well, it's, I'm not saying it's always the case. Sometimes we just mess up and we have ourselves to blame. But other times God knows what he's doing. And lastly, the other home run, the other thing that we have to keep in mind, the other thing that Jesus keeps talking about, I wish I had left myself a bit more time to talk about this, but God is in control. Do you notice how when you go through these verses that he keeps talking about that? Look at verse 36. He, in fact, he gives some verses that are maybe a little bit more difficult for us to understand, but he keeps talking about it. And if you analyze it in the context, you begin to understand why he keeps talking about it. He says in verse 36, But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. Am I going to let that shake me up? No, look what he says in the next verse. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that hath sent me, that every one that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. When the disciples murmur, and they are offended at the saying, he, he brings this truth up again, verse 65, and he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. What's he really saying? He's saying, you know, that this is God's work. In the final analysis, it doesn't depend upon me. It depends upon God, and God is in control. And it may not always work out exactly how I think it should work out. It may not always happen how I think it should work out, but God is in control. And 
We always have to keep that balance. We can't use that as an excuse for not doing our part. We have to do everything we can, and then we have to trust. I like it. Put this way, we have to work as if everything depended on us and pray as if everything depended on God. But you know something, beloved? Here's the great truth I'm talking about right now. When you've done everything you can do, when you've done everything God has given you to do, you can put your head on your pillow at night because God is in control. And God doesn't make any mistakes. And you know the work of calling men and women and boys and girls unto himself is something he's given to us, but something ultimately is his work. If we are faithful in doing what he has called us to do, the rest belongs to him. And there's something about knowing that. I wanted to talk to you just a little bit as we close the service today about something I brought up at Thanksgiving time because in a few moments we're going to use this for our closing song. But I want to show you how this truth about God being in control can be such a, an encouragement against the lies of Satan and in our lives. Do you remember you talk, we're talking about that song because we sang it back then, Count Your, Many, Count Your Blessings? Well, remember I told you that that song was written by a man by the name of Johnson Oatman, Jr., What's junior mean? It means there was a Johnson Oatman Sr. And it so happened that Johnson Oatman Sr. was the best singer in town. He had a rich, powerful voice. The thing of it is that was kind of a discouragement to Johnson Oatman Jr. because he really felt like he wanted to use music for the Lord. And it was always kind of discouraging to him that he, he just couldn't measure up. He just couldn't sing like his father sang. And yet he wanted to have and felt that God would have him to make musical contributions through his life. And he was involved in several things. He ultimately went on to school and, and became involved in the Methodist Episcopal Church for a time. But he just kept have that had that continuing hope that God could somehow use music in his life. At the age of 36, he realized that he did have a musical talent. He'd been looking for it in a different place. He'd been discouraged by the fact that he couldn't sing like his father. God had blessed him in a different way, and he discovered it. He discovered that he was able to write songs for other Christians to sing. He discovered that he could give Christians to sing, to sing the gospel to people. Do you know that Johnson Oatman began to write those songs at the rate of approximately 200 a year? He ultimately wrote 5,000 of them. You know, we, we talk about Fanny Crosby wrote 8,000. So 5,000 is not too shabby. He ultimately wrote 5,000 of them, and we sing some of those songs today, and they're some of the treasured songs that we have in our songbook. Johnson Oatman himself said that his, among all of them that he had written, his two favorites were No, Not One and Higher Ground. But you know the Christian public voted differently. The Christian public voted in favor of Count Your Blessings. It by far and away, became the most popular of Johnson Oatman's songs. He wrote that song in 1897. And 
immediately. It just became a favor of people. I told you at Thanksgiving time, it was Gypsy Smith, the evangelist who made the statement about that song, men sing it, boys whistle it, and women rock their babies to sleep by it. And what was he comforted by in that song? Remember the guy that started out discouraged because he couldn't sing like his father, ultimately to find out that God was really in control after all, gave him a different talent which he used for his honor and glory. And so he writes about discouragement in that song. And in the first stanza, he says, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. What's he getting at? It's a lie. If Satan can get you to believe that somehow all these other people have been blessed and you haven't. And if you don't think that's what he's talking about, you get to the last stanza. And he's talking about it again. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, Do not be discouraged. Why? God is over all. God is in control. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. So I'm looking to Jesus. I'm saying there may be other truths, but when the Lord met that discouragement that day, he charted his way through that minefield And I use that figure advisedly because many a mine of discouragement has blown many a Christian right out of the saddle. But Jesus charted his way right through that minefield by coming back to old truths that we just have to keep reminding ourselves and reminding ourselves and reminding ourselves to undo the lies that the devil would tell us. We aren't alone Sometimes it is true, winnowing is necessary. But whatever is going on, God is always in control. And he doesn't make mistakes. Heavenly Father, we come to you today.